www.thecalicoontheater.com. Join us now as we explore the Catskills from the foothills to the high country and both sides of the Delaware River, meeting amazing people here on Catskill Character. My guest today on Catskill Character is Nancy Lee. Nancy is a sculptor, retired art teacher, and also worked at another job that I'm going to let her tell you about. Nancy has a very cool story to tell. In light of the DACA decision recently, it's fascinating to hear how one immigrant child came to the United States and how difficult it was, even with her father being an American citizen. Nancy is a woman of many talents who clearly loves this country and has contributed enormously to her community. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Nancy Lee. Welcome to Catskill Character, Nancy. Thank you, Donna. Pleased to be here. If we're going to give uh, a quick overview of your route to the Catskills, we could say that you were born in South China, moved to Hong Kong, then to Brooklyn, then to Manhattan, and from Manhattan to Calicoon Center. I find your history so interesting. Let's start with your mother back in China. She was there before, the, of course, the communists took over in 1949. What was your mother's life like then? Well, she was basically a southern peasant farmer with a husband in the United States. That must have been tough. Well, it was very tough because my father was not able to bring my mother to the United States. So she was alone for long stretches of time, meaning seven, eight years at a stretch. Mm. And what were the living conditions like for her? Well, I think it was difficult not having her husband there and raising the kids by herself and just feeling somewhat isolated. But she did have my grandmother, my father's mother, who lived with her. So that made it easier. And she had her own mother and father. Mm -hmm. Her father was actually in Canada. And at that time, many Chinese families were split because of immigration. In light of what we have now with the travel ban, it brings back those memories. It was difficult being the head of a household and not having your mate. Did she learn to farm as a child? I, th I think everybody in those days had a little bit of uh, land and farmed if you were in the country. So she was in the country, and they grew a lot of their own crops, and they knew how to, she knew how to butcher chicken. Mm. They had farm animals. I don't know if they had anything more than chickens, maybe some pigs. So that was an important skill for her on many levels, knowing how to farm. It came in very handy when the communists took over, and uh, she was able to survive because she knew how to farm, and she had a little bit of land. And not, not just the communists, but before that, when the Japanese invaded, that was also a very difficult time. And farming came in handy then. So what about your dad? Was he born in China also? He was born in China. He was brought to the United States by his father when he was a young boy. I'm thinking about eight or ten years old. And he actually grew up in Boston. If you spoke to him, you'd think he had a kind of an English accent. It was a mixture between the English from Hong Kong, which was Britain's English, and the Bostonian accent. So he spoke perfect English. 
You told me that your father and your grandfather had a falling out. What, what was that about? Well, back in the day, if you had any money, you showed your wealth by taking on a second wife. So when my grandfather took a second wife, or you might call her a concubine, uh, my father, even though it was a tradition, my father stopped speaking to his own father. And he never spoke to him again, because at that point, I think he felt that his father had pretty much left his mother. His mother. And that was in Boston? No, no, no. That was back in China, because the men could not bring their families over. So most men would go back and forth between the United States, where they would work, save enough money so that they could take a ship back to China and then see their family. The second wife that my grandfather took was also in China. Huh. There were very few women in the States back in the, the So day. who did your father come over with when he was 10 years old? With his father. Uh, with his they, father. They were able to allow some of the sons to come, but not the wives and not the daughters. Mm -hmm. Did your father then support his mother? As I was growing up, I knew that my father every month was sending money home back to his mother. This is back in China. Mm -hmm. So for the rest of his life, he supported his mother. Wow. And he grew up in Boston. He did, and then eventually they came to New York. He, in fact, left high school to go out to work. So I believe he started out in the Bronx, and then he came to Brooklyn. He had a real peripatetic life. Yes, yes. And he, he was sorry. Many years later, he would talk about, oh, I should have stayed in school. I should have gotten a high school diploma. But he was more anxious to work and make money. And eventually, he took the route his father did, which was to go back to China. And through an arranged marriage, he married my mother. Yeah, so she was still in China. And she ended up in an arranged marriage with your father. Uh, your father was an American, actually, but he was following that Chinese custom. Right. There weren't that many Chinese women to begin with, so it would have, ah. been, it would have been hard to date. But back in those days, parents felt that they knew better. And sometimes I think that parents do know better. Uh, if, given yeah, the, we know a thing or two. <laughs> yes, and, and given the divorce rate in the United States, maybe it's not a bad idea to have an arranged marriage. Very good point. <laughs> uh, my, my parents were arranged, and they were married for until uh, they died. So it worked. For them, yeah. it worked. And what happened to your grandmother, the, the woman that your, your mother's in-law, in other words, your father's mother, what happened to her? I mean, he was support, your father was supporting her, but... Right. Eventually, my mother and myself, I was born in China, and my sisters, we all were able to come to the United States. It had been very difficult because there was a law passed in the late 1800s called the Chinese Exclusionary Act. And it stemmed from the railroads when Chinese laborers were hired. There was a lot of animosity. Chinese were accused of taking other Americans' jobs. So many Chinese families could not reunite in this country. So even though my father was an American soldier, fought in World War II, he was not allowed to bring my mother and me over. So how did that work? I mean, how many years was he going back and forth like that? Well, there are five kids in my family, and the oldest is 24 years older than the youngest, and it was about every seven or eight years 
seven, eight, nine years that my father saved enough money to make the trip. So each time he went back, he had another child with my mother. When I was born, I actually didn't see him till I came to America because my sister, who's a year older, she was born. And then on that same trip, my mother became pregnant again with me. But he left. So it wasn't till six years later that I saw him. Do you remember what that was like, seeing your father for the first time? Actually, I do. I was assured that when I came to the United States, I would be getting a doll because she promised me, oh, your father will buy you a doll. Because in Hong Kong, we we never had dolls. So when I came to America, I said, oh, so you're going to buy me a doll? (laughs) And he said, oh, you're way too old for a doll. Oh, no. I was only six years old, so I was very disappointed at that. But... Eventually, I did get a doll. So your first impression wasn't too good. No, no. But I remember it was an amazing trip to New York because I'm so used to Hong Kong. And uh, at that point, Hong Kong was so, it still is, actually. Hong Kong is so crowded. The, The living conditions were such that we had many families in one building. Each family had one room one bedroom, and we all shared a a communal kitchen and one bathroom. So when I came to the United States, there was so much space, so much land, and you didn't have people all over you all the time. Did you enjoy that aspect of it? Did you like that, or did it feel strange to you? It felt very odd, very different, and it took some getting used to. Mm -hmm. When I came to America, we had mattresses, and I was so used to having just a straw mat on top of wooden boards that I couldn't really feel comfortable on a soft, squishy mattress. <laughs> I, I took to the floor. I'd rather sleep on the floor. So that that was probably for the first couple of weeks. Now, what kind of a mattress do you have now, Nancy? Do you have a- I, well, I'm, I'm married to uh, a Caucasian, so <laughs> <laughs> we, ha- we have a soft mattress. Okay. <laughs> You got used to it eventually. Yes, what right. about the food? The food must have been very different. You know, everybody here loves Chinese food, but I grew up on Chinese food. And in, in fact, my parents uh, owned a Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn. So when I came to the United States, I was enrolled in kindergarten, and the smells from the cafeteria were very exotic. So I begged my mother, can I have a lunch ticket for a week and try out this funny food? <laughs> anyway, she, she said, "What are you crazy?" <laughs> she uh she let me do that and it was my first taste of American food which was I think at the time probably something like spaghetti and meatballs or it, it was some sort of tomato sauce and it was this mystery food which mm. I wanted to taste. But but after a week it got kind of tiresome, so um <laughs> so you went back to your <laughs> my regular food. Yeah. And also we we should add that the Chinese food that people know as Chinese food here isn't necessarily the same as what Chinese people were eating in China at the time. That's right. And even now wherever you go in the world, uh Chinese food is a little different because it's catering to the local taste. And I guess the foods that are available to the locals. Right, right. Mm-hmm. What was it like for a Chinese girl growing up in Brooklyn at the time? I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly Jewish. So at the time, there weren't many Chinese people at all. When I started school, I didn't know a word of English. 
So it was kind of hard. They would pin little notes to my dress, and at that time you had to wear dresses if you were a girl. And my father, who's totally literate in English, he would decipher the notes when I came home. My mother, till the day she died, didn't speak any English because she worked as one of the cooks in the kitchen. It it was interesting. I, I think it was easier for me to learn English than some of my siblings because the younger you are, the easier it is. Yes. So I didn't really have a hard time. I, I think within the year, my English was pretty good. And did you find that the kids just accepted you as one of them? You know, pretty pretty much, I, I think the kids did accept me. But of course, I, I have to say that there was discrimination. People would occasionally say things. So mm-hmm. I think if if you're any kind of uh, foreign-born person or if you have an accent, I think it's difficult. We, we all have experienced some form of discrimination. You must have done really well in school because you got accepted to Barnard. I think most Asian families put the kind of like the the family honor and reputation in each of their kids by saying, you know, you've got to do well in school. We may have uh, a Chinese restaurant. We work hard, but you don't need to have this kind of life because it is a very hard life. And my parents wanted all of us to go to college and do something that's more, I guess, more like a doctor, lawyer, teacher. Well, you did grow up in a Jewish neighborhood also. <laughs> yes, very similar. <laughs> it is very similar. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the Jews that were living there probably came over also. Right. And wanted so much more for their kids. I've always thought that Jewish and Chinese are somehow related So by the time you went to Brooklyn College, which is where you decided to go, right? Right. I didn't want to actually put the burden on my mother and father to support my college education at Barnard. That was private. So I chose to go to a city university, and pretty much that was free. Oh. At the time, I think it might have been $500 a year, and I got a state scholarship that paid that part. So it was essentially free. I did okay. I was always interested in art. I didn't know what I would be majoring in, but the more art I took, the more I said, I don't really want to do anything else. But my mom was very, very smart. She said, you know, you might want to take a teaching degree just to be sure. I'm so grateful she said that to me because I I wasn't thinking of supporting myself. I was just thinking what I wanted to do. And the teaching career that I had, I love teaching. I love the students. When I run into my former students, I'm always elated. They, They tell me what they're doing. They tell me how much it meant that they were my students. I love the career, and I love doing the art with the kids and exploring my art at the same time. So it's done very well. I'm Donna Fellenberg speaking today with Nancy Lee. Please stay tuned to hear more of Nancy's story and an unusual skill she possesses. We'll be right back.
Terry James is still wearing his Union soldier uniform and hat with a gold bugle on the crown. Tamika asked Terry if he has a particular ritual when he does the overnight in slave dwellings. Terry raises his arms, which are in shackles. This is what I do, he says. Storytelling, Historic Huguenot Street, and the Slave Dwelling Project. Saturday at 4 on the next Janice Adams Show. Welcome back to Catskill Character. I'm Donna Fellenberg, and today I've been speaking with Nancy Lee, known professionally as Nancy Lou, that's L-E-W, Lee. After coming to this country as a child, Nancy quickly became proficient in not only the language but her studies. She went on to go to college and to live the life of an artist in Soho and Tribeca. But before you became a teacher, you became an electrician. Oh, right, right. <laughs> While I was going to grad school at Pratt Institute, I was also waitressing, and one of my customers who came in all the time was an electrician, and I asked him, do you ever hire women? And he said, why, do you want a job? I said, sure, I'd like to learn it. And he hired me on the spot, told me to show up the next day, and from there, I learned the trade and went out on my own. I actually worked as an electrician in Sullivan County for a little bit. Really? Yes. Before, I think before my kids were born, and then it became too hard having two kids. But I started out being a teacher at Jeff Youngsville as a substitute, doing electrical work on the side. And then after the kids were old enough to go to school, then I became a full-time teacher at Fallsburg High School. Uh-huh. I just want to stay with the electrician thing for a minute. Did you have your your own truck, Lee Electrical Works? No, no. I, I actually worked for the man who was the licensed electrician. Oh, okay. So whatever I did, he supervised and signed off on. So the jobs that I did, some of it came through him, some I got on my own. Another woman from the crew and I partnered up for a while. So we did combinations of things, but he was the one with the license, and he trusted us enough to know that what we did was good work. So Yeah, I think you told me that he was the only man who hired women to be electricians that you knew in, of. In New at York the time. City, in, that, that yeah. I knew of. And we, as a crew, I think we had seven women. Somebody I recently ran into again here up in Sullivan County is somebody who I worked with down in the city. He, he remembered me from those days. It was quite interesting because we sometimes would go to these jobs and the guys, some of them were, were shocked that there were these women electricians. Sure. Yeah. It, did they give you a hard time or were they like, well, okay some with of, it? No, some, some of them did give us a hard time and some of them were fresh that yeah. they would come on to us. Uh-huh. I mean, we were all these young, beautiful women and it, it was unusual. They were going for a little spark. You should pardon the pun. Yeah, right. <laughs> you told me also that you were going to be going to Alaska to help your son wire his house. Right. Our, our son lives in Alaska. He built himself a tree house. A tree house. A tree house. And he asked me to come out to do his house wiring. And I said, wouldn't it be cheaper for you to just hire somebody local instead of me buying a plane ticket and coming out? He said, but mom, and this is where he's appealing to me as the teacher. He said, I want you to show me how to do it. Oh. I don't want you just to do it. I want to learn. So, of course, I'm going to show him mm -hmm. because I want to teach him. Yeah. 
who could he trust more to right. wire his house than his mother? Yes. So you still have that skill. You haven't I lost do. it. Oh. I do. Well, I know who to call the next time I have electrical <laughs> problems. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your work. You started out as a sculptor, right? I am still a sculptor, but of course, most sculptors do other things. So I also do painting, drawing. I do many sketches before I do a sculpture. It doesn't just appear. So I've always done that. And now as I'm getting older, I think I'm doing more two-dimensional rather than three-dimensional because it takes a lot of space to do sculpture and to store it and to show it. And I I feel at this point a little bit um, more comfortable with two-dimensional drawing. Now you have a kind of interesting history insofar as where you lived as an artist Back in the day, you were living in lofts in Soho and Tribeca. Can you talk about that? Yes, that was back in the early 70s. And at that time, the lofts weren't worth as much as they are now. In fact, when we were living in Tribeca, you could not recognize it compared to what it looks like now. We lived on Franklin Street, and the building had been a textile company. The textiles were all moving down to North Carolina or south somewhere. So all these loft buildings were vacant. They just abandoned them? Well, the landlords couldn't rent it to anybody. Uh So they they started renting to artists. I think it was a couple of hundred dollars a month in the beginning. And it was 1,800 square feet and windows on both ends of the loft. And there was just so much space for so little money. But the thing it was that it wasn't legal. So if the fi- fire marshals came knocking, you'd have to try to hide your dishes and um, your bed. You couldn't show that you were actually living there. Did that happen to you? It happened to my husband, but it didn't happen while I was there. What would happen if you got caught? Would you get a fine? or I think you, you could even be thrown out. The landlord always knew. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming because they come in, they would see the bed. And I don't know if they would get into trouble or if they would be fined. I really don't know. But you could stand the the chance that they would just kick you out. Uh, You mentioned your husband. When did you meet him? I met him at Brooklyn College. And he was teaching there, and I was a senior. But he was not somebody that I had as an instructor. He said that he knew in the beginning that he was... He was very, he he was very smitten. Yes, he was smitten. (laughs) And it took me a little longer. You just saw him as a teacher and someone who's equally interested in art. Right, right, right. And your husband's name is Richard Richard, Presnar. Yes. Mm -hmm. When did you and Richard buy your home in Calicoon Center? We bought in 1977. And even though we've been here that long, I think some people still consider us as newcomers which is a little bit uh, different. My kids, our kids, were born and raised here, and they went through the school system here. But I think um, we're we're still considered newcomers after 40 years. Wow. I I guess I'm just a fetus at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I've only been here nine years. (laughs) How did you find the viability of living here as an artist? When we first moved up here, there weren't very many artists at all. We only knew, I think, two other people. But then it became much more populated by artists. And now there's a thriving art community. It's unbelievable. 
with a lot of your friends up here, yes, artists. Yes, You we, have your own community. We do, and it's a wonderful community. I think the artist community is very supportive of each other, and the interests that we have are similar, and I think our leanings as far as what's good for people, what's good for the mind and the soul, I think we all share something in common. In order to be an artist, you have to wear a lot of hats, so you had your electrician hat and you had your teacher's hat. Was there anything else that you did? Or is, I think that's, that's plenty. Well, I, I always try to serve my community. So one of the things I do is look in on some of the other elderly artists. That and this are, is what you do since you've retired or you were always doing this? I think I was always doing it mm -hmm. within whatever time constraints I had. It's been hard to make art to show my art, to teach full-time, to raise two children, and to be involved in the community, both, I would say, politically, because I, I did enter the fray of politics, and I represented the town of Calicoon as a town councilwoman oh. for four years. What was that like? I think it was a very good experience. I, I can say for sure that it did the town some good because I got some grant money, a HUD grant. It was hard because, you know, if you want to do anything and do it well, it takes time. So with all the other obligations I had, it wasn't easy, but I think it was a good time for both myself and the town. It was fulfilling for you. Yes, yes. And I, I, I always feel that um, whatever I do, I want to leave it like the Boy Scouts say or the Girl Scouts, leave it better than you found it. Mm -hmm. So I think I've done that in, in the endeavors I've chosen. I was at uh, Fallsburg, the department chair, and I think uh, there were... Fallsburg High School? Yes. There were 10 people that served with me uh, in my department. So I, I managed the budgets and curriculum development. So I would hope that everything I touched, I left better than I found. You know, that's a really beautiful way to live, Nancy, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you coming in and sharing all of your stories with me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest on Catskill Character today has been the artist, sculptor, teacher, and electrician, Nancy Lou Lee. Her website is local-artist.com slash users slash Nancy dash Lou L-E-W dash Lee Hope you'll tune in every Saturday at 7.30 a.m. or Mondays at 2 for more conversation with my guests on Catskill Character. I'm Donna Fellenberg. Thanks so much for listening.
Support comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at www.thecalicoontheater.com. Support comes from Two Queens, offering fresh roasted coffee, fine teas, and local honey. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. Coffee, tea, and bees. TwoQueensHoney.com. The road to the White House runs through South Carolina, and the results could reshape a still crowded race. So we better be ready to compete. Fighting back is an act of patriotism. And I'm absolutely certain we're going to defeat Donald Trump. I'm Michelle Martin. Join us for live special coverage of the 2020 South Carolina Democratic primary from NPR News. Saturday evening at 7 in place of Set It Off on WJFF. This is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. Right now, we have Brad Mann, DJ of the WJFF Night Out. Well, we want to have a celebration in Bethel. $15 gets you some light fare and wonderful music and conversation all evening. I'll be playing new music. Okay. Um, along with uh, my friends from Gorilla Toss, who are a band in Livingston Manor. We truly hope you can be there. Saturday, 